0: Welcome to the Organizing Ideas Podcast. My name is Karen. And I'm Allison,
1: and we're two new librarians and archivists, and your hosts for this podcast.
0: Together, we're taking a closer look at the relationships between organizing information and community organizing, how libraries and archives are never neutral, and what we mean when we say that knowledge is power. We are recording on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh
1: peoples. Today, our guest is Stacy Collins. Stacey is a research and instruction librarian at Simmons University in Boston, where she's the liaison librarian for social work and children's literature. Stacey developed an anti-oppression guide available through her library and has delivered several talks and processing workshops on equity work in many facets of library and information science. Outside of librarianship, Stacey is a children's literature scholar and reviewer, addressing the legacy of whiteness and cis-heteropatriarchy in publishing, reviewing, and critical scholarship, and the role of all of these in the production of diverse books for children and young adults. We are so excited to talk to Stacy about anti-oppression and librarianship today. So thanks for joining us.
0: Part 1 of our interview with Stacy Collins is on her work on the anti-oppression lib guide. It was a super interesting conversation about Stacy's journey into librarianship, what anti-oppression is, and how the lib guide came to be. For part 2, we're going to be talking a little bit about policing and police presence in libraries. <music>
1: This sort of actually came up in your last answer when you're talking about, um, like, representing different people's relationships with the police and kids of color, their relationships with the police. Um, Something we wanted to ask you about, uh, part of how we heard about you in the first place, was this interview that you did with NPR in June about how libraries are supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. And in the interview, you you spoke a lot about libraries' relationships to police. So for folks who haven't heard that interview, could you summarize some of the reasons why
2: police shouldn't be in libraries? Reasons why a police shouldn't be in libraries. I mean we shouldn't be we shouldn't be policing the folks that enter our doors, period. Um, whether it's with actual armed officers or not. But yes, yeah, so in its simplest way, police police as a as a force do not are do not represent safety and in fact often represent a threat to marginalized folks. Particularly in public libraries, marginalized folks that may make significant use of the library as one of the few spaces where they have access to tools and services um, and sometimes just space where they can exist without being expected to buy something and so if we are if we as librarians are meant to be equitable and accessible and if we are in fact committed to the things we keep saying we're committed to about uplifting marginalized groups um, and seeking greater diversity and whatnot If we're about that, then we cannot we cannot have police in the library because that's essentially like saying you're welcome here as long as you are as long as you fit within our idea or more specifically, the police forces idea of what you're supposed to be in a public space. And that's just a big threat to marginalized folks um, who are looking for the library to be accessible and be available and looking for the library as a space where they belong that's not going to happen if we have, if we have police in the library. Yeah.
1: Thanks. Um, you make it sound so simple. If only every library administration.
2: <laughs> right. And I, and that interview was so short and I, it was, yeah. it was weird to have sort of the NP, like a voice I'm very, very used to hearing on NPR radio, like talking directly to me. It was a little surreal. Um, like my radio came alive. Some of the, some of the questions they asked were sort of about like, well, you know, safety is, Is an issue right so like how can we just sort of say no police to which the answer is mostly the same as all the all the many folks who who are far more knowledgeable than me about defunding the police and 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 also fully abolishing police like it is possible to live without police that police are in fact a fairly recent invention within within the scope of human existence and society existing more more or less safely Um, and the fact that they you know police forces have their roots in catching catching and re-enslaving people who would escape slavery not such a not such a great legacy especially when they don't actually like interact with it at all right there's no engaging with that legacy and saying here's how we're not doing it anymore because in fact they are still doing it and i'd point i'd point people to the many the many many resources that have come out if you're a if you're a visual person uh, the documentary 13th was fantastic um, and how police sort of function as An armed arm, (laughs) an armed arm of a criminal justice system that is, again, a system set up to um, disproportionately harm particularly black and brown communities, but also any disenfranchised oppressed groups. And so, no, we can't we cannot say we are involving police for the safety of our community or the safety of our staff, because that er that completely erases the idea that marginalized oppressed people are on our staff are parts of our community for whom police are in no way safe. Yeah, for sure. You've, you've given
1: one example just now of how people might like educate themselves about, you know, the history of police, the violence of police forces. Do you have any other thoughts on how um, library staff can like bring this into the conversations that we might be having at our workplaces about police and security in libraries? I don't know if it's something you're talking about at your workplace or
2: um, places you'd guide people on that. Yeah, and I won't I won't say that every every solution, and maybe even solution is the wrong is the wrong word, but the wrong way to frame how we address any kind of safety issue. Because if we're talking about a, a lot of a lot of libraries will talk about, well, you know, we have drunk people that come in the library. We have violent people that come in the library. Right now we're seeing a lot of not great folks, not great members of society who are refusing, not only refusing to wear masks, but also getting belligerent and violent when asked to do so or asked to leave those kind those kinds of issues which are not unique to the library but in fact exist right like that's it's just sort of our cult it's our culture uh, and, and it's existing inside our doors as much as it exists outside of them so the question of well what do folks what do folks do about this outside of the library is maybe a place to start right uh, the folks who talk about community response And community resources that allow us to exist without police forces as as some, I don't know, safety net of if things get violent, at least we have this other violent force that probably will have more violence at their disposal to overpower and get it out of the library. That doesn't work. It doesn't work outside the library. It certainly doesn't work within it. And so I think everything has to start with a conversation and it needs to be a conversation that centers the voices, concerns, ideas, suggestions of folks who live in oppression. Um, in this case, probably starting with by POC staff administrators, although it's more likely that they are not administrators, more likely that they're staff, but the com- starting with conversations of, when we talk about security and safety, what do we mean? Safe and secure for who? Safe and secure how? How do we what's our metric for safety and security? Where does it start encroaching on our our purpose and service to the community, et cetera, et cetera? And it's not to say I don't I don't have answers like those answers will probably look different for different libraries, but the point is to ask the questions. The point is to consider, well, you know, it's there are communities that can exist without police or that prioritize community intra-community resources over things like calling the police. So what in what ways can we emulate that kind of response in the library? In what ways can we keep the staff safe? Can we keep the whole staff safe? Not, oh, here's, you know, a violent patron and so we're calling the police, which has now placed other patrons at risk and possibly marginalized staff members at risk as well, simply by them entering the library space for the purpose of using violence to overpower violence. So again, it's not it's not really a, a wrapped up shiny solution. And again, Solution sounds so final, and this is really something that must be ongoing, constant check-ins, constant accountability to our communities and to our staff, again, centering the needs of the folks who are typically marginalized and saying, what does safety look like for you? How can we bring that into the library without sliding into rhetoric around the greater good, right? That if, if a few individuals feel threatened by police, at least the majority feel safe. And it's like, well, that's how we maintain the status quo. Right. That's how that that those those kinds of statements, that kind of thinking is where oppression lives and thrives. So having the conversations, being open, being open to alternative solutions and being open to the idea that they may require more work, they may require more resourcing, they may require more training, they may require a bunch of things that have to happen to make it work, as opposed to pressing a button that delivers to you a, ready, a ready-made solution in the form of a uniformed officer. That was a lot.
0: <laughs> so policing is one example of a profession that wields a lot of power and it contributes to oppression, but you know, obviously it's not the only one. Um, how do you think the conversations people might be having about police and libraries right now um, might inform conversations about social workers and libraries um, or private security or even librarianship itself.
2: It's mm. a good question. and it's actually it's one I don't know if I have a full answer to because it's also a conversation i'm I'm paying attention to. N- not every library has social workers, but the ones that do have have talked about it a lot. anyway, I think I think the the basic answer here, though, is if you are envisioning another group of people um, to be present in the library to function as a policing force, then you're—that that is the wrong way to go. So, oh, we won't call police. We'll have social workers in the library is like social workers should not be replacing police in a sort of one-to-one social workers know how to de-escalate and whatnot and they can get these people out of the library etc that's not that's not the idea It, it shouldn't be about how can we how can we contain say you know contain people contain problem patrons and either remove them from the space or whatnot i don't think that social workers in a library is a bad idea i think it needs to be I think need, it needs to be fully considered what their role is, what what do they represent in the library, right? Like social workers are not, again, an objective or inherently good field. I keep <laughs> I keep having vocational awe circle around in my head, um, which is a a concept that was coined by Fobazi uh, Itar, and she she talks about vocational awe within librarianship, and it exists. You could, you could point to it in, in any sort of helping any of the helping professions, where this idea that because we're helping professions, we, uh, what we do is inherently good. And it leads to a bunch of stuff that has to do with the labor that we take on and the expectation that we, we don't need to be paid for our labor and whatnot. But in this case, it's also the idea that a social worker is just must be must be helpful, must be good, must be the opposite of harmful, just because they're a social worker. Um, But like I said earlier, social work is also a profession just like librarianship, um, just like nursing, just like um, sort of any helping profession you can think of that has both roots in whiteness, has historically and currently embedded, whiteness sort of embedded in the bones of the profession, and is currently trying to deal with issues of Oppression in its own in its own ranks and ways of doing things. Social workers in the role of uh, like child help child welfare caseworkers and whatnot have done lots of harm in the name of good have done lots of harm to communities of color families of color. So what does a social worker in your library really represent? Is a question that must be asked. And again, the conversation is important. The centering the folks. Centering the folks who live in oppression is important. It's not that every social worker everywhere is a problem in a library. It's it's more that you need to be very clear on what having a social worker in your library is. And if it's just a replacement for a police officer, that's not going to work. Private security, even even library roles, like librarians who sort of their their position is really meant to, quote unquote, keep an eye on the floor, on, you know, on, on the patrons in any given time who who are sort of tapped if there's a patron who gets rowdy or is otherwise causing a problem or breaking rules and sometimes it doesn't have to be a librarian like I like I'm the I'm the policing librarian it doesn't have to be its own position it sometimes it's, it's baked into the job duties of particularly youth librarians uh, teen librarians are often sort of expected to you know quiet quiet down teens kick them out if they cause problems. And guess who that disproportionately affects? Um, but it's also like along with that does not come the important conversation of, hi, we're banning you because you broke these rules, but there's no conversation about who do these rules ultimately serve. And if I am part of your community as a teen, a teen of color, a black teen, if I am part of your community, if I am representative of a, a user group with unique needs um, within the library, why do, the, why do none of these rules serve me? Um, why, why am I always in a position of following or breaking them, as opposed to being served by them? And also, I think probably at the bottom of this is also if, if you have things that if you have things in your library, people in your library, positions in your library that undermine patrons' right to privacy, patrons' right to I don't know existing <laughs> in a space without being immediately questioned or having to justify their existence in the space of the library, um, or their access to materials, and it's probably, probably should rethink it.
1: Thanks. <laughs> I Thank feel you. like, um, it, as you said, it's a, it's a really ongoing conversation, but I feel like that's something that often really gets missed, that these roles are getting introduced to more or less recreate and do the same tasks in, like, quote-unquote nicer ways or whatever.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. The nice librarian.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess as we head towards the end of the conversation, is there something that you wish more folks knew about anti-oppression in libraries or a thought you'd like to leave people with before we
2: wrap up today? Oh, goodness. No pressure, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think if it was a question of what I wish folks knew more, especially in moments like this where, you know, black people are are dying on the news uh protesters who demand justice for their snuffed out lives are being harmed by police forces and uh and others you know as they as they protest and demand justice it we see we see in these moments also a lot of renewed energy around let's pu- let's publish more books that center Black people. Let's publish more black authors. Let's let's have more you know black journalists and op eds and think pieces. Let's talk about um, ways to hire more black librarians and you know launch more residency programs and whatnot. And good lord knows every everybody who could even it, even wishes to call themselves an organization put out a statement. Everybody had a statement. Everybody everybody was super super anxious to to say we know that black lives matter we we agree with it we support it we we believe it and we we are committed to committed to believing it actually is what a lot of the statements come down to we we are committed to believing that black lives matter we condemn this violence that we're seeing on the news every night we are we have learned to say systemic racism we have we are backing off of saying implicit bias you know we are we are part of the solution, we are not part of the problem kinds of statements. And what I wish more folks knew as we get those sort of renewed sort of explosions of um, look at the good librarianship can do is, one, this work is not new, right? This work is not new. Most of the concepts you're talking about, the commitments you're making, um, you owe to so many librarians of color from decades and decades ago doing this work so please like spend some time learning about that legacy before doing things like putting out a statement before doing things like saying let's have a new residency program etc or before doing things like saying here's the best solution because it makes sense to me so there's that piece of it there's also the piece of it that is about librarianship wanting to be part of the solution without thinking about how we are part of the problem. And Rachel Cargill, actually, in in addressing social workers, she she gave a talk about whiteness and social work and everything. You could have just slotted in librarian instead of social worker. But she said, you know, ask yourself the question, how does my work, my career, my any anything, think, think about what you do within librarianship. Think about the field of librarianship. How does it Rely on the continued oppression of Rachel was specifically talking about people of color. So how does it rely? Um, how does it rely on the continued oppression of black and brown people? Basically saying, if tomorrow black and brown people were liberated, their oppression, racism has been eradicated. Our society has righted itself in this particular way. Do you still have a job? Does your job still look the same? and more to the point is your job now contributing to that future or capitalizing on our continued um the continued the continued oppression instead and so that's not so much that's a really depressing wish but it it's real like i want i want people to think i want think people to think very much about complicitness um and that learning is important but learning does not make you not part of the problem because that's not how the problem works.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely very important. And thank you for leaving those thoughts for us. Um, and Stacey, thank you again so much for your time and for joining us today. Um, if folks want to reach you online, where can they find you?
2: Well, my inbox is a full-on like hazard zone right now. <laughs> so uh, Twitter is probably the best way. Um, I, my my Twitter handle is dark dark literata. I do a lot of retweeting of people um and occasionally say things myself as well it's all i also have the anti-oppression guide is a pinned tweet so if folks are looking for it that is also one way to find it great
1: thank you it's been great talking to you stacy and thanks so much for making the time i know you're very busy and a new parent and everything so we <laughs> we especially appreciate it
2: no absolutely yeah. this is this has been this has been great um really i'm i'm I remain very gratified that you asked me to be here. It's great.
0: We can be found on Twitter at OrganizingPod. That's organizing with a Z and not an S. Our email is organizingideaspod at gmail.com, and our website is organizingideaspod.wordpress.com, where you can find links to things that we've mentioned as well as transcripts to the episodes.